If you're new or visiting Northview, Mike and Aaron are rock stars with us. They have been all over the globe and the planet, have done incredible things. They're going to give us an update today, and he's going to be speaking out of the book of Jonah. But let's give Mike a great Northview welcome. Mike, welcome back. Come on up. Good morning. How are you? That's very sad. Um, so uh, I'm Mike Pettengill, my lovely wife uh, over there, Erin. Um, we are uh, we're not strangers to Northview, but if we're strangers to you, let me just tell you where we've been, where the Lord's had us. So about 10 years ago, we left for uh, the mission field. Uh, we were in Honduras for eight years in Central America, and we started a, a ministry there, and, and Northview was uh, aggressively a part of that. Uh, through support and prayer and uh, uh, very much involved in what we were doing. Uh, the Lord, my wife, who's a registered nurse, did uh, medical mercy work, and, and I started the ministry there as um, church planting, and, and we built a seminary and a high school and, and a lot of mercy ministry, ministries based around a home for single teenage moms and street kids. And, and uh, after eight years, we left that ministry in the hands of about a dozen North American missionaries and about 30 Honduran nationals. And the Lord called us to Equatorial Guinea. And I know where you all know exactly where that is, right? It, I didn't four years ago either. It's fine. It's, uh, Equatorial Guinea is uh, a small country you know, on the west coast of Africa, and it's the only Spanish-speaking country uh, on the continent of Africa. It was uh, run by Spain for about uh, f- almost 500 years. And so while we were there, my wife continued her, her awesome uh, mercy ministry. Uh, I like to say that uh, she does phenomenal things, and I just carry her bags around the world. And, and she continued to do that. And uh, I was a, a professor at a seminary there, uh, the only evangelical seminary in the country. And uh, just some wonderful work to an amazing poor and, and needy people. And then uh, recently the Lord called us back to the West Coast where we're originally from. Uh, our mission sending organization said, you're from the West Coast. You have a heart to, to disciple and mentor new missionaries. And we want to open a new office on the West Coast. And we'd hate to pull you off the mission field, but we'd like you to prayerfully consider uh, moving back to the West Coast and, and, uh, and training and preparing new missionaries so we came back just seven months ago so our our heart is really still you can be in prayer prayer for us our heart is still in africa um it very hard living uh but wonderful ministry uh we're still getting used to all the neat things like water that comes out of taps that you can drink and and air conditioning built into your dumpy little apartment and it's great and uh so we are we're still uh, adjusting, so be in prayer for that. But what we're doing now is we're traveling up and down the West Coast into Arizona and into Nevada as well, and and we're uh, trying to develop a heart uh, for missions uh, amongst congregations, and we're trying to raise up missionaries from the West Coast. and And if you're from uh, originally from the West Coast, if this isn't new to you, you know that that's the, the, it's a like the work you're doing here at Northview, this is hard soil to till sometimes in a postmodern world that, that is indifferent towards, towards our faith, let alone the concept of evangelizing the lost here in your, your hometown or, or around the world. So uh, that's our new ministry, and we are, we're living in, in L.A. right now and, and traveling up and down the West Coast to, to, do, to do what I'm doing right now and just to share the, the, 
the Lord's heart for, for missions with you folks. So if, if you have any questions about what we're doing or what we've done, um, my, my lovely wife and I'll be here afterwards and we're going to have lunch with a few of you and, and we'd love to talk to you about that. But let's go ahead and let's transition into uh, the message this morning. And uh, before I do that, let's, let's go, go before the Lord. So, Father, we ask that um, in the next few moments, Lord, you can utilize uh, me, your humble servant, to bring you great glory. Uh, Father, I pray that you can uh, receive glory from that which I say and protect the hearers from that which does not bring you glory, Lord. I pray that this touches my heart and, and the heart of others. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you're going to bring a missionary um, off the field to preach uh, a message uh, about uh, about evangelism, global evangelism, you really got to be in Jonah, right? That's the only place we, you can be when you're talking about missions as a Jonah. But um, so this isn't one of those rhetorical questions. I actually would like a, a couple, a little bit of input from you. So what is the book of Jonah? Tell me what you think the book of Jonah is in a couple short words. Not everyone at once. Just go. Couple, what's Jonah about? God's what? God's grace, evangelism. Whale, obedience, arguing with God. And those are all not wrong and they're all wrong. It's, they're, those are right. Yes, sir. Change of heart. Um, those are all great answers. And there, and, and there, are, there, are, there are aspects of those in this. I, and I want to argue that it's actually a book. It's not about... Uh, a, a wayward prophet. It's not about a, a, a big old fish and a fun little worm. It's not about the lost people of Nineveh. Um, it's about God. It's a book that tells us who God is and helps us understand who the Lord is so that we can love him and serve him better. So that we can see him um, more actively in our lives and so that we can, we can love the Lord for who he is and not who we want him to be. Um, so let's go ahead and, and, and take, dive into it. You, you, we're going to find, there's a couple of things I want to point out before we even start is you'll find that a lot of commentators on the, on the book of Jonah, uh, both liberal, conservative, it doesn't matter where you fall on the spectrum, uh, view this book as an allegory, as a fictional tale. And I actually want to park in the, in the concept that I don't think it's a, an allegory. I don't think it's a, a, an untrue story that tells us wonderful things about the Lord. I think it's historical. And uh, so one of the proofs right off the bat is, is in Second Kings. Uh, the book of Second Kings references Jonah and his father as they are historical figures. Um, and I have trust in the perfection of the word of the Lord um, and the, the, the Bible proves the Bible. And, and I also want to point out that um, the book of Jonah is, is actually very pre- predominant in in the New Testament as well. We'll get back to that in a second. Um, but I don't want to rest on the fact that this is just some wonderful story. A lot of people look at the, the, the fun little fish and the cute little worm and the, they put sackcloth on the animals and all these weird, how does a man breathe in water for three days? And it's got to be a fictional story. I think that if, if Jesus, if we can be comfortable in the fact that Jesus Christ was born of a, born of a virgin and that he is the son of God and that he raised others and himself from the dead, figuring out how a man breathed underwater for three days is really no big deal for the Lord. Um, so just we're gonna, I, I'm going to park in the fact that this is a, a very comfortable, factual, historical story. The other point that I want to point out right off the bat is, is that this is a really 
inside and outside of, of theology, this is a great literary story that people have evaluated the book of Jonah for its literary prowess, for the fact that it utilizes a lot of literary tools that were intended to really highlight some of the glory of, of the Lord in the book of Jonah. And we'll point out a couple of those to you. But um, the first one appears right in the beginning and, and that the very first person to speak in the book of Jonah is the Lord. And feel free to go ahead and open open the Bible in your paper or your electronic versions. I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna really race through Jonah, and you can follow along. This is really gonna be a survey of the book of Jonah, but focusing on uh, chapter two, verse nine. So the Lord opens up by speaking. The Lord also closes the book by speaking. So He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He's He's the bookends of this tale. And the Lord speaks to Jonah, who's a prophet of Israel, and he says to Jonah, uh, I want you to go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach against them. And uh, Nineveh, we'll talk more about them in a second, but that's the capital of Assyria. And uh, Jonah has a response to the Lord. Uh, It's not a verbal response. It's in his actions. Um, He goes not to Nineveh, but in the direction of Tarshish. We're not really 100% sure where Tarshish is, but we know it's just in the wrong direction. Um, this would be the equivalent of, of you sending uh, Pastor Steve to go preach against the great city of uh, Las Vegas and he heads off to Alaska. Um, he's just going in the wrong direction. He's got his own plan, his own agenda, and he's not willing to follow the Lord's. And that's where Jonah is. So it says uh, in chapter one that Jonah goes down to the city of Joppa. And remember that word down, we're going to revisit it. It's not the, it's not the last time we're going to see that word. and We'll talk more about it in a moment. But he goes down to Joppa. He gets on a merchant ship. And uh, he pays the fare and he heads in the direction of Tarshish. And so they're on the Mediterranean Sea and they are, um, remember, these are professional merchants. These are professional marines. These are, these are people that grew up on, the, on this sea. And it says, the Lord sent a wind. So who sent that wind? The Lord did. God sent that wind. God is in control of this entire, this entire tale. Um, and God sent a storm. God is in control of the storm. And these these mariners respond to this storm pretty extremely. These are, these are people that have grown up on the sea. They have seen storms in this water. They know this, and this one freaks them out. So much so that they just toss their, their cargo overboard. But understand what that means. This is their livelihood and their reputation. That they're saying they're so afraid of this particular storm that they want to lighten up the ship so that it bobs like a cork and uh, rises up and bobs like a cork and it's not beaten by the waves. And so they throw their reputation as good um, merchant sailors overboard and they throw their income overboard and they're horrified by this. Well, where's Jonah? It says Jonah goes down, the second appearance of the word down. It goes, he goes down into the belly of the ship. And what is Jonah doing in this death-defying storm but sleeping? So he's not narcoleptic or indifferent to what's going on. He is um, very aware of what is going on. And what in Jonah's heart he's aware of is that he's, a, he's being disobedient to the Lord. To Jonah, this 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 storm is no surprise. This is exactly what Jonah has earned, a death sentence. And he knows that. 
And um, so he, is, he has resigned to uh, allow himself to be killed um, for what he has done in disobedience to the Lord. And he's sleeping in the belly of the ship and the captain comes down and he calls him a sleeper. You sleeper, what is it you're doing? Get up and pray to your small g God like everyone else is doing. Go to the deck of the ship and, and, and obviously this is, such a, this is such a storm that some small g God must have caused this and, and pray to your God that this will, this will end. So Jonah rises up to the deck of the ship and you've got to imagine this cacophony of, of just vile worship of all these deities. These men are, are, are these, these, the crew and the passengers are worldly people and they have uh, come from all over the world and they've brought their gods to this ship and now just imagine this, this uh, what sounds like an out-of-tune orchestra, a 30-piece orchestra playing 30 different pieces of music as, as one is bloodletting and one is sacrificing and one is, is wailing and one is dancing and one is screaming and one is praying and one is singing and, and Jonah comes up and, and, um, and they decide, well, what we're going to do is we're going to cast lots and we're going to figure out who is responsible, who, who has upset their small g god to the point that he has caused this great storm. And so they cast lots and, and casting lots is throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, it's a way that, that both pagans and followers of Yahweh have, have decided that this is how I will give my Lord a voice. I will ask him a question. He will respond by um, making the lots uh, do what he what he wants to occur. Very common practice in the Old Testament. So they cast lots. This is the equivalent of modern day rolling the dice, and snake eyes falls on Jonah, and and everyone looks at Jonah, and they say, "You did this." So uh, it doesn't say that God controlled the lots, but I think it's, we're pretty comfortable. We can say that God is in control here. God has got everyone's focus on on Jonah, and they say. Who are you? Where are you from? What's your job? What is it you've done? And Jonah has this great opportunity. Think of it. He's a prophet of the Lord, and people have given him the opportunity to talk about Yahweh, and, and he, but he's not so excited. This is, this is like you're in the line at the coffee, uh, coffee shop, and some just random person behind you taps you on the shoulder and says, Boy, you know, I've been wondering about eternity, and what is life all about? And I just, I'm so lost, and I just can't, is it, there's got to be something greater. What do you think about that? You're like, oh, well, uh, softball pitch on evangelism. I better take this up. And Jonah gets a softball pitch uh, to talk about Yahweh. And he says, no, he says, I I am a Hebrew, which is a derogatory term. And I'm a follower of the God that's created this storm. And and he talks about himself. He doesn't glorify the Lord. And he says, not for the first time, not for the last time in this book, but I, I have to die. If you want to survive, you've got to kill me. This is the only way. I've got to go overboard. This is my fault. Um, and for you to live, I've got to, I've got to go overboard. And they don't want to do this because they know that the, the retribution of the God that could create a storm like this has got to be great. And they don't want to harm one of his servants. And Jonah convinces them and, and they toss him overboard. And when Jonah's no longer on the ship, then it says... The men turn to the Lord and they pray to the Lord and they sacrifice to the Lord and they become believers in Yahweh when Jonah's not even around. So, Jonah, uh, so God does all this great work with these, with these sailors who we're going to see in heaven as our brothers and sisters when there's no prophet around. 
And so then it says, uh, God sends a big fish. So who sent the big fish? God sent the big fish. God is in control. God, God is the one controlling the story from the beginning to the end. This is a story about how God is sovereign. And so this big fish comes and it swallows up Jonah. And this is another part of the tale that has caused a lot of commentators to see, well, this must be fanciful. Um, this must be a, a, a fictitious story because, as we know, a big fish breathes by sucking the oxygen out of water that's inside of its body, and the inside of a fish is full of water. How is a man supposed to breathe? Um, I think that a God that can be born of a virgin and, and raise himself and others uh, from the dead can figure out how to make a guy breathe underwater. So again, if that's something that turns you off on this story, there's there's no pun. Well. Big pun intended, bigger fish to fry on this. And so um, so it says right off the bat, it gives away our punchline. It says Jonah is inside the fish for three days and, and three nights. Um, and, but we don't get to see that first two days, 23 hours and 55 minutes. We see the last snippet here. Um, and you've got to imagine that Jonah is wailing and crying and beating on the side of the fish. And he's he's having his, his come to Yahweh moment and... and um, we see the final prayer where, where Jonah finally gets to the point where he needs to get. He says, his third, for the third time, he says, I was going down. I was going down into the ocean. So he went down into Joppa, down the city of Joppa, down into the belly of the ship, and then down into the ocean. This is a down, down, down. It's another literary tool that the writer is using to show us the distance from, not from God, but the distance from God's glory and the distance from obedience to God. As Jonah goes further into the story, his disobedience becomes greater and his, and his separation and his emotions go down, down, down. And so he goes down into the ocean and it says that he, is a, he, he, he went down into the roots of the mountains where you know, the mountains touch the, the floor of the, of the ocean and the grass wrapped around his head, so that's the seaweed. And, um, and that's where you found me. I was at my depths and you saved me. I was at my, and not, and not just physically, but spiritually. I was at my depths and you saved me. And then we get to the heart of this passage. And again, it's another literary tool in that we're in chapter 2, verse 9. And that is numerically, physically, geographically the center of this book. And it's like the tip of the mountain. So it, at chapter 1, verse 1, Jonah was, Jonah was here, and now he's making this pathway to the Lord, and it, it crescendos at chapter 2, verse 9, and from this point, unfortunately, it continues to go down, and he, he gains greater distance from the Lord. Uh, but it's another literary tool that, that peaks here at the key verse of this, of this, of this book, which is uh, chapter 2, verse 9, which, as Jonah speaking, says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, sacrifice to you, Yahweh. Um, what I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so Jonah is acknowledging what he knew to be true all along, was that salvation does not belong to Jonah. Salvation belongs to God. And that that. God is going to save who God is going to save. And, and we're going to talk more about why Jonah doesn't really care for the people of Nineveh in a moment. But he, he, is, um, he is acknowledging this, has, this salvation has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with you, 
Pastor Steve or myself. It has to do with the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. You can be as, um, uh, like myself, a, a terrible, awful missionary um, or a terrible, awful preacher or a terrible, awful evangelist, and the Lord will use you. Um, that if you are obedient and you follow the Lord, uh, salvation belongs to the Lord, and he will do, he's proven throughout Scripture, he will do astonishing things through some pretty lame characters. Um, uh, Moses was a murderer, and, 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 and David couldn't keep his hands off of his neighbors, and, and Paul was a persecutor of Christians, and, and God did astonishing things through them because salvation is of the Lord. And, and Jonah knows this but acknowledges it here for the first time and so what does this this tells us as the reader of the story that this is that salvation is of the lord salvation is in the hands of god he controls all of this so we move on and this is really this is one of my favorite parts of this entire book where it says and you can look in verse chapter 2 verse 10 it says god spoke to the fish and the fish vomited Jonah up onto dry land. So this dumb, obedient animal that does whatever God tells it to do, hears the word of the Lord in its little fishy ears, and, and then it vomits Jonah onto dry land. And so it doesn't say that God spoke to the fish, and then the little fishy opened his mouth, and Jonah swam out and patted him on his little fishy nose, and then, and then he swam on, onto the beach. It doesn't say that the, the fish went up to dry land and opened its mouth, and, and, and Jonah walked out and waved goodbye, and the little fish has a little flipper and waved goodbye. And it says God spoke to the fish, and the fish vomited, drama, vomited Jonah onto dry land. So my wife, the registered nurse, helped, helped explain to me that um, what vomiting really is. And, and I know it's not cool to talk about vomit in the front of the church, but has anyone here had a, ever had a really good time vomiting? Is it a, a good, good experience? Okay, something you kind of uh, tell your friends about at a great time, right? It is vomiting, according to my wife, the nurse, it, vomiting is when the body expels from within itself that which offends it. Um, a virus or poison or something like that. And, and in this case, the obedient servant of the Lord is vomiting out the disobedient servant of the Lord. And I like to think that it's kind of God putting an emphasis, an exclamation point on this and saying, Jonah, in case you were wondering who's in control, blah, it's me. Um, and so, uh, so Jonah lands on the beach and now in another literary, literary tool here, the very, in chapter 3, in the beginning of chapter 3, the second half of the book begins the same way the first half does, where God speaks to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh, the great city, and I want you to preach against them. He adds something here in the second, in the second time he states this. He says, I want you to preach the message which I give you. Okay, this is not the equivalent of when my now beautiful 21-year-old daughter was six years old and I was trying to convince her to clean her, clean her room. And I said, sweetheart, go clean your room. Okay, daddy, I'll get right to it. And I come back 30 minutes later and I said, baby, you've got to go clean your room. Okay, daddy, I'll get right to it. And I come back 30 minutes later and her room's not clean and I grab her by the shoulders and I say, what did I say? Go clean my room. Go clean your room. This is not that. This is not God saying Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against them and just preach the message I give you, you goon. This is not that. 
I don't believe this is that. This is God showing his glory because he says, preach the message which I give you. And here in a couple, couple of minutes, a couple of seconds, we're going to see exactly what that message was. And I think this is why this becomes relevant. So we know where the city of Nineveh uh, was we, we know where it is it's still uh, it doesn't exist in all of its glory but physically we know where we've they found it archaeologists have found it and they know that it's uh, at the closest point to the Mediterranean assuming the fish was nice and put Jonah as close as he could to Nineveh it's about a 28 day walk across the desert from the Mediterranean to, to where Nineveh is and Jonah's got 28 days smelling like a fish bleached from stomach acid and 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 um, looking and sounding like a Hebrew, to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And Assyria at this time in history is near its peak in its prowess, and Israel is near its peak in its prowess, and they're arch enemies. God uses Assyria to correct and re-guide his elect uh, Israel into where he wants them to be. And Assyria does this in, in a very Assyrian way. It's not just kind of a, it's not just kind of nice redirecting or nice conquering or nice defeating. They uh, are pretty vile people. And when they go to battle with you and defeat you, um, they breed your line out if you get my get my message in. And they they cut off the heads of the soldiers and they stack them in in piles in front of the conquered city and they splay the carcasses of their victims on the walls. And anyone walking by goes, "Ooh, I don't want to be like that. I'll obey Assyria if they ever attack my people." And they have, they have done battle with Israel. And, and Jonah probably has friends and family and neighbors that have had this happen at, at their, at their, um, at, at, to end their lives. And Jonah knows that. And Jonah, the, the, the people of Assyria are vile to the people of Israel and vice versa. And Jonah has 28 days to walk across the, the sand uh, to get to this great city, which the Bible tells us is... Um, three days across, and it's probably, we know how big it was, it's probably not like walking three days across, it's not that long. It's, they, they think maybe it could be walking up and down the, the roads, it took three days to cover the city. I think realistically, the, the third um, definition of what three days across means is kind of the greater me- metropolitan Seattle area. You and I know that Seattle is Seattle, but Seattle is you know, the small communities, small cities that surround Seattle. Uh, while we're not in Seattle right now, if we talk to our family who's outside of the Pacific Northwest, we say we're from Seattle, right? Um, and so, so this is probably uh, what uh, the greater Nineveh area. And so it says then that Jonah preaches uh, this great, great message, right? It's it's in here in. In uh, chapter 3, verse 4, it says, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Uh, Quite frankly, a lame little eight-word message that's actually shorter in Hebrew, um, and it's just a a little message. But remember, what is he preaching? Preach that message which I give you. So I want you to go ahead and preach this lame little eight-word message, and we'll see what happens. Well, we find out at the end of chapter 4, 120,000 people of Nineveh convert and start to follow the Lord. The greatest conversion in or outside of Scripture in the history of the world, 120,000 people follow the Lord from this lame little eight-word message. 
And so this is, this is think about if, if, if uh, 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 we'll use uh, wonderful Pastor Steve as an example again, uh, you as a congregation decide that you want to pray for him and raise up funds and send him and his family to Addis Ababa to preach against the great city there. And he's gone for a couple of weeks and he comes back and stands before the congregation to report all that he's done. He says, you guys, I preached this great eight word message uh, in Addis Ababa and it was so neat. And you're just like, really? You went all the way to Addis Ababa and you preached eight words? Can, can we get our cash back? I mean, what is it you did there? Um, and, but he preached the message that the Lord gave him and the result was 120,000 uh, people converted. And, and so there's no way that the glory of this could fall on Jonah. It has to fall on the Lord because the Lord is in control. The Lord's in control of the message. The Lord's in control of the salvation. The Lord's in control of getting the messenger there. And, and he's in control of making sure that this pretty lame prophet preaches a pretty lame message that results in, results in a pretty amazing event. And, and it says that the, the, the people respond, the capital of, uh, capital of Assyria, Nineveh, the, the, the king of Nineveh, uh, pulls his robe off and that's a very big statement the king does not disrobe for anyone that is not superior to him and he did, and he pulls his robe off before the 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 lord and he's and the, the king tells that says that everyone is going to uh, repent and everyone is going to fast and everyone is going to uh, throw ashes and sackcloth on themselves and he even says um, this is another another aspect where uh Commentators have said this has got to be a fictional story because it's kind of silly. He says that the animals are even going to fast and have sackcloth and ashes on them. And we have to understand what that means. So if you say, Mike, what are you worth? Mike, what's your true value? And, and in the modern Western world, I can say right here, this is my true value. Everything uh, of, of, of financial interest that I have here is located in this tiny little wallet. And well, at the time in Assyria... Um, everything that you had was your cattle and your livestock, and that was your wealth. That was where your income resided. And so to, to put ashes and sackcloth over my cattle is the equivalent of saying, I and, and all my estate will follow the Lord. I submit all that I have to the Lord. So this big 120,000 conversion of Jonah's greatest enemies, and Jonah is so excited, right? He's thrilled. He throws a party for the people of Nineveh, and they celebrate together. No, nothing like that at all. Chapter 4, Jonah goes out of the city, and he says, he says, he says to the Lord, he says, I knew it. I knew you were going to do this. You always do this. You have all this grace and mercy and you willy-nilly share it with whoever you want, whether they're deserving or not. And I knew you were going to do this to Assyria, no less. The arch enemies of your chosen people, Israel, you're going to show your grace and mercy to these scumbags? I knew you were going to do it. That's why I went to Tarshish. Because I didn't want any part of this. And I knew you could do it without me and I knew you were going to do it without me and I didn't... I would rather have died than to see these people saved. And God tries to start a conversation with Jonah and he says, do you do well to be angry? 
And Jonah will have none of the conversation. And he goes and he, he uh, gets a big tub of popcorn and sits on the hill outside of Nineveh waiting for the, the, the show to begin. Fire and sulfur raining from the sky for God to change his mind on Nineveh. And finally they get what they deserve. But that's not what happens. God sends a hot wind. So who sends the wind? God sends the hot wind. God is in control. God says, we're going to have this conversation, Jonah whether you want to or not. And Jonah says, I wish I could die. Again, not for the last time. He, he, doesn't, wanna, he, he doesn't wanna be around here. Don't think of this as Jonah's a little wimp and it's getting a little hot. You know, it's a little heat wave. It's not that. This is a hot wind coming off a desert designed to make Jonah feel like he wants to die. So then God appoints a plant. So who appointed that plant? God did. God is in control. God is controlling the dialogue and the conversation here. And he appoints the plant, and the plant grows, grows abnormally fast overnight, provides a shade for Jonah, and Jonah says, Ah, oh, finally I get, I get relief. And God says, We still haven't had that conversation yet, Jonah. So God sends a worm. Who sent the worm? God sent the worm. God's in control. God controls the dialogue and the conversation. And the, the, the worm eats the plant, and the plant falls down, and Jonah says, Oh, I want to die again. And and so God asks a question of Jonah. And this is of the 66 books of the Bible. We're here now. We're at the end of chapter 4. 66 books of the Bible. It's one of two books that end in a question. But it ends in the question that, that offers no answer. So it's, a, it's, a, it's our final literary tool uh, of the several that we've talked about and the many we haven't, where... The question is not really intended for the character, Jonah. The question is intended for the reader. It's a way of, literary tool, way of asking the reader to answer the question that's being asked. So what's that question? So God concludes chapter 4 in the entire book with a question for Jonah, really the reader, and he says, why do you... Why do you toil over this plant which you didn't cause to grow but you don't care about those 120,000 souls that I just saved? Question mark. End scene. But it's not the end because again, the question is not for Jonah. The question is for the reader. So he's asking the reader, you care about the plant but you don't care about the souls. He's saying, what is it you care about? Do you, what is it you're placing in front of the salvation of the lost so that you don't care about the lost, dear reader? Why is it that you place that which is important to you, in Jonah's case, his disdain for Assyria, in our case, what I don't know, comfort, security, good name, family, what is it that I place in front of the Lord's glory? Why did I delay on going to the mission field? Why have I delayed sharing the gospel with countless people? Why have I delayed God's glory being heaped upon him and the lost coming to the Lord? What is it that I've placed in front of the Lord's glory? And so we as readers, we read, we read this and we see that indeed the focus of the book is that God is in control. God has controlled the wind and the waves and the fish. 
He's controlled the salvation. He's controlled the wind and the plant and the, and the worm. And that God is in control. Our Lord, our, our Creator, is in, is in control of the world. He's in control of everyone's salvation. He's in control of the environment. We have our free will, but the Lord wants us to use that free will to follow Him and obey Him. Why does He want to use us for the salvation of the lost? I have no idea. I think this row of chairs could do a lot better than me and my fellow missionaries have ever done um, because they'd be a lot more obedient than we were and a lot less sinful than we were. And I think that the, the Lord could use them. But for some weird reason, I still don't get the Lord delights in using us for the lost to show them God's grace and mercy, to show them his justice, and to, to win them to himself. And this isn't the part of the sermon where uh, I say that all good Christians sell everything they have and move to Equatorial Guinea. That's actually not a part of any sermon I've ever preached. I don't believe that. I believe what we are called to do is to say, Lord, I avail myself to you, that I will follow you how you tell me, I pray you don't send me to some place like Honduras or Equatorial Guinea, but I avail all I have to you. And, and Lord, I acknowledge that there are lost in my own home, that there are lost across the street from me, that there's lost in the line at the grocery store, there are lost who don't know the love of Christ in my city, my county, the neighboring state, and around the world. Like Acts, Acts uh, 1.8 tells us, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that we're to be a part of that in Jerusalem. This is your Jerusalem right now, where you are. And that God has called us for some weird reason to be a part of this. But he wants to know here in Jonah, what is it you're placing in front of my glory? Why do you refuse to, to share the gospel with those I've placed around you? Why do you why do you refuse? What is it? In in my case, I've had lots of great excuses to not show the gospel, to not to delay missions, to be obedient on the mission field, to be obedient here in in the West. And so the Lord asks us, "What is it you place in front of my glory, and how do we remove that so that you will simply move forward and?" Seek my glory in all that you do. So as I conclude with a prayer, the prayer for, for, for me, I hope you indulge that the, the prayers for me that I, I, I would love for the Lord to lift the scales from my eyes. And, my, and this, I, sh- I share this same prayer that's in my personal private moment with you that the Lord would allow me and us to see what it is that that we have placed in front of his glory to remove that from our lives and to march forward in a way that we are obedient to 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 reaching the lost where he's placed us and around the world let's pray father thank you so much lord for um the opportunity um to look at um jonah who really resembles us uh too much um, Lord, thank you for the question. Uh, what is it that, Lord, that I place uh, in front of your glory? Lord, I pray that you help remove that um, from my heart.
Lord, I pray that um, that everyone in this room can experience um, seeing your glory to be spread around the uh, the globe, starting here in our Jerusalem and going to our Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Lord, please use us for your glory in that manner. In your perfect name we pray. Amen. Amen.